Boy, I, I just got I just got to share. Uh, I'm I'm uh, I'm 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 kind of having to get accustomed to this here because I feel like I'm in a straitjacket. <laughs> I don't know what to do. For those of you that are that, that don't know, you know, uh, I like to roam around a little bit, just a little bit, and I I feel confined to this space, and so voluntary confinement. I that's what it's going to have to be, Dan. Um, so anyway, if I, if I seem a little awkward, that's what it is, okay? I'm, I'm just trying to, I'm trying not to fall down, basically, and break my neck two feet ahead, okay? As I thought about this uh, Sunday, and as I thought about the season of Advent, um, you guys, I'm reminded it's so easy to miss the, the, the point or the, or the meaning of Christmas, even for those of us who follow Jesus, it's, it's easy. It's easy to come to this season and go, you know, the point of Christmas is that we be more kind towards each other. The point of Christmas is that we become more generous. The point of Christmas is that we work towards peace and justice. Those are incredibly important. Followers of Jesus needs to do kinds of things. But they're not the point of Christmas. It's not the meaning of Christmas. The point of Christmas and the meaning of Christmas is that a Savior came down to earth, lived a perfect life, died a perfect death, rose again, now rules and reigns, and one day will return to restore all things. And because of that, we could work towards peace and justice. Because of that, we need to be people that are radically generous. Because of that, we need to live our lives in radical obedience. Do you hear what I'm saying? It's easy to miss, it's easy to miss the Christ of Christmas and go straight to, whether it be consumeristic materialism or well-intentioned, but saying we need to do all these things. The foundational motivation and anchor to do those things is Christ, a Savior who was born and is returning again. Amen? By the way, I know that this space kind of, I think, is forcing some of us to be a little bit more, as I'm sort of confined, we maybe feel like we need to, shh, be quiet. Come on, church, let's be new community. It's our house, you know what I'm saying? So we've parked ourselves in Luke chapter 2. So turn your Bibles with me to there because we're going to continue for the next week just to kind of dig deeper into what, 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 what the gospel of Christmas, what Christmas, the Christ of Christmas has teach us, oh, and that we would be anchored in that so that we would be. Listen, I just got an email today. I got an email today. There's a gathering at 1.30 to 3.00. Lathrop Homes is a group of homes that are right at the corner of Diversity and Clybourne that have been around for years. And they have been empty for how many years, Daniel? Nine of those years. years. And there's a meeting today. I'm going to say this earlier. Daniel, raise your hand, please. There's a meeting today, a group of churches that are trying to advocate that people would be able to have those homes, affordable homes, right? Particularly folks and our neighbors who might be homeless who can't afford them. Um, would you mind being available in the fellowship hall, Daniel, to talk to anybody that might be interested in going? The reason why I mentioned that is because, like I said, the gospel compels us to a life of radical obedience. But man, I got to tell you, we got to get anchored. And so we look at Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken to the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Verse 3. And everyone went to his hometown to register. So Joseph went also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because it belonged to the house of the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Verse 6, a time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger. We come to the context. This is a brief review from last week. This is 2,000 years of waiting promise 
that has come to fruition. 2,000 years the Jews had waited for this promise that was given to their father Abraham. But by the time this, this, this promise comes to fruition, the nation of Israel is under the rule of the oppressive Roman government. And the nation of Israel, the people of God, know nothing but life of injustice, poverty, violence, oppression. Does it sound familiar to anybody? And they're a nation that are just waiting, waiting for their Messiah to come and do something. Let me, let me ask you something. In that context, if you were one of the people of God and somebody came to you and said, hey, isn't that great news? A Savior has been born. And a Savior has been born and he's going to die for your sins. So someday when you die, you can go to heaven and be with him forever. If that was the gospel, the good news that was proclaimed, do you think the people of Israel would have said, Oh, goody, that's exactly the good news that we've been waiting for all of these years to somehow give me hope from my life of daily grinding poverty and unjust oppression. The answer is, no, no. A gospel that was proclaimed just so that Jesus could forgive you of your sins to go to heaven so you could spend eternity would have heaven would have fallen on deaf ears. Because they would have said, Is somebody gonna do about this evil? Is anybody gonna do about this injustice? Is anybody gonna do anything about this violence and all the stuff around here? Is G- is somebody gonna do something to rid this world of all this evil and justice and corruption and violence? That's the good news that came. Proclaiming. There was a time there was a need for a Messiah, this was it. But if there was a time when people had just given up hope, this would have been it. And what did we learn last week? Message of Christmas is that God never, say it with me, forgets. God never forgets. But in his time. In his time. God never forgets. He is faithful to keep his promises. But in his time. Verse 8. Then in this Hain region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping a watch over their flocks by night. Gospel Luke is my favorite book in all all the Gospels. Anybody else? Because the Gospel Luke, more than any other Gospel, the Gospel of Luke, the author, makes a point of saying, here are the people who get the Gospel. Here are the people who get the good news. And when you look at them, there are people like what? Shepherds, the poor, the uneducated, women, the people who are considered social outcasts or the bottom rung of the social ladder of that time. The people who are marginalized and despised. Luke keeps pressing in and saying, they're the ones who get it. They're the ones who get it. They're the ones who get it. And interesting enough, you see this pattern repeated throughout history. Think about it. Think about it. Think about it. When you look at church history, most of the major revivals started where? It started among the poor. It started among the marginalized. Do you know that? It started among the persecuted. It started among the uneducated. And by the way, I know my audience. It's not about being educated and undereducated. It's not about being poor and being rich. It's about a posture in life that either says, I don't have what it takes to make it, so I need a savior. Or a posture in life that says, I'm smart enough, I'm able enough, and I'm fine without God. I know my audience. The wealthier you are, the more educated you are, the more powerful you are, the more difficulty you have in believing that you can't come to God on your own. That's why God had to come to you. The essence of the gospel is that you can't get to heaven. So heaven had to come to you. Is that hitting you today? See, the essence of the gospel is, the essence of the gospel is that we're not mistakers in need of correction. We're sinners in need of a savior. We don't need to be helped. Give me some help. 
I'm educated. I'm wealthy. I'm powerful. I just need a little bit of... We need to be rescued from our sins. And the people who get salvation in the gospel are those who can admit, I'm not smart enough. I'm not able enough. I'm not powerful enough. I'm not moral enough. I'm not good enough. I need a savior. I know my church audience. Do you get it? Now, the interesting thing is, if this is the essence of the gospel, do you know what that does? That means that there could be no such thing as an arrogant Christian. Can I get an amen? Those two things can't grow in the same dish. Arrogant Christian. I'll say it again. Arrogant Christian. Christmas is the end of self-righteousness. Christmas is the end of us despising people. Christmas is the end of us looking at anybody in our culture, in our world, saying, oh, those people. Let me ask you something. Do you self-righteously despise other self-righteous people? I know my audience. Do you self, you may not be a racist. Come on now. But do you despise other racists? You may not be a bigot, but do you look at anybody in our culture, a different political party, a different class of people, different education, different race, ethnicity? Do you look at anybody in our city, in our world, and saying, they're the problem? If you do, you don't understand the gospel. Do you know what that first family would have smelled like? They had been in a stable all day. Do you know what they would have smelled like if they had gone into town? Imagine them standing next to you on the L train. Imagine what they smell like. Now, how would you respond? How would you have reacted? Christmas is the end of self-righteous I despise them. They don't get it. We, followers of Jesus, at the essence of the gospel says, I don't get it. That's why I need a savior. Can I get an amen? But has this hit you yet, though? Hmm? Has this hit you yet? Daniel, Annette, do you, church, do you see Christ in that neighbor that you tend to despise? Do you see Christ in that political party that you despise? Do you see Christ in the race class? Do you see Christ in them? See, Christmas isn't warm fuzzy, man. It's got a bite to it. So you're all going to walk out of here today. And you need to ask, has the gospel of Christmas gotten a hold of me? And I say once more, arrogant, self-righteous Christian. They can't exist. Verse 9, and an angel of the Lord appeared, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Does anybody pay attention? Do you see anything unusual? Are you awake? So let me get this right, gospel writer Luke. When the shepherds were in the dark, they're perfectly calm and peaceful. All of a sudden, when they get into the light of God's glory, they become terrified. Are you awake this morning? So my kids, pastors shouldn't do this, but my kids, I talk about my kids. So one of my kids is terrified of the dark. I won't mention his name, but he's the oldest. Um, (laughs) I have another child who is not only not afraid of the dark, but just doesn't even phase her. (laughs) 
I have three kids who are visitors. I don't like inside jokes. My oldest is Parker. He's 10. My second is Sophie. She's eight and almost five. So Jenny and I will do this. We'll, 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 for a joke, we'll go, Parker, we need something in the basement. You know, Daddy needs his kimchi. Can you go down to the basement and get the kimchi, please? <laughs> Knowing what's going to happen. Knowing what's going to happen. We're so mean. We're so bad. We're such bad parents. <laughs> Parker will wait, and then Parker will go, Sophie, you want to come downstairs to the basement with me? I want to show you something. <laughs> to which Sophie goes, sure, Parker. And, she, and Jenny and I will look at each other. I'm like, good Lord. <laughs> Is it not normal? It's not just children for us to be at calm and peace and the light and fear the dark. And yet what we see here is the opposite. Matter of fact, in verse 9, it says they were filled with great fear. And what you have here is actually an ancient way of making a point. It's doubling of a word. The Greek word for fear is phobos. And literally it says they were phobia phobos, meaning they were filled with great fear. Anybody have King James Bible? It says they were sore afraid. Why? The reason they're sore afraid is this is a particular kind of light. It's the light of God's glory. When you read Genesis to Revelation, it's uncanny how often this happened. Do you remember Isaiah? chapter 6. The light of God's glory comes up. And Isaiah's response isn't one of, whoo-hoo, was. He says what? I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. He's terrified. Remember Job? Job, the light of God's glory comes. You got to pay attention, you guys. What's his response? Boy, this is a nice one. I despise myself. I see myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Apostle Peter sees who Jesus is really is. His response is what? Depart from me, for I am a sinner. Any time in the Bible that the light of God's glory comes, they're traumatized and filled with fear. Why? Because what happens to the shepherds throughout the Bible is an echo of something that happened thousands of years ago. Do you remember Adam and Eve? Adam and Eve, the first human beings, the Bible says, walked in the cool of the day with God. And the glory of God, the presence of God was like life and breath to them. It was like fish and water. They loved it. They enjoyed it. They basked in it. In the presence of God, the glory of God, under God's rule and reign, they felt no fear, no insecurity, no restlessness, no guilt, no shame. Then one day, something happened that changed the trajectory of human beings forever. They decided to become 21st century Americans, modern people. And a consultant come along and said, you know, Adam and Eve, you really are smart enough, you know. You could call your own shots in life. You don't have to submit to somebody else. You decide what's right or wrong. You decide what's moral and immoral. You need to be your own boss. You need to be your own master. You need to be the captain of your own ship. And Adam and Eve said, he's right. We don't need to submit to anybody. Why don't we submit to anybody? We're smart enough. We're good enough. We don't need to submit. We could choose our own way. We don't need to be under someone's rule and reign. We will decide what's right or wrong. We will decide what tree to eat from, what tree not to eat from. And on that day, everything changed. Here's how the writer of Genesis puts it in Genesis 3. This is so powerful, you guys. The man and his wife say the word hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you, Adam and Eve? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was, what? Afraid. These are people who one time, glory of God, light of God, moment they said we will be our own gods the glory of God shone on them and they were afraid I wish I can take credit for the next illustration 
of what happened there? I can't. I'm not that smart. You ever taken on a job that you're completely unqualified for? Say, "Uh uh-huh, if you know what I'm talking about. Anybody? If you've ever taken on a job you're totally unqualified for, you get to the bottom of what we see in picture. When you're in a job that you're completely and totally unqualified for, here's what happens. You become incredibly defensive. You become ridiculously anxious. And the slightest bit of criticism, you're devastated. And then worst of all, if somebody else shows up in your department who is more qualified than you, who knows the things you ought to know but you don't, who has the skills you ought to have but you don't, when someone like that shows up in your department, what happens? You're paralyzed with fear and racked with insecurity. Why? Because our imposterness, is that a word? Our imposterness, I just make up words as I go. Our imposterness is revealed. What do I mean? All of a sudden, in their presence and their light, other people begin to see, and we realize we don't know what we're doing. We've taken on a job we're completely unqualified for. And here's the thing before I apply this. Instead of submitting to the light, we do what Adam and Eve did. Instead of submitting to the light of God's glory, we resent it. You know what we do? We go, fig leaves, fig leaves, fig leaves, fig leaves, fig leaves, fig leaves. I need some fig leaves. We get fig leaves. That's a very bad visual. We get fig leaves. Use your imagination. We get fig leaves, okay? We get fig leaves and we cover ourselves up. We cover ourselves up to make us feel safe. To make ourselves feel secure. You ever see any of these things? I feel safe because I have a job. I feel safe because I have a family. I feel safe because I have a relationship. I feel safe because I have talents. I feel safe because I have looks. I feel safe because I have guns. I feel safe because we're not going to allow any more Muslims to come into this country. I feel safe, and the list goes on and on and on. But here's the thing. Do those fig leaves actually work in making us feel safe, church? No, they don't. Why? Because we know how precarious they are. We know that jobs might not last forever. We know that family members die. We know that relationship ultimately sometimes will break apart. We know that our talents sometimes aren't good enough and our looks fade. We know that no amount of law will change a person's heart. And we know that no political party can truly reform the system. And yet we keep trying in our fear. What do we do? We keep getting these fig leaves and saying, I can be safe. I can be safe. I can be safe. And God comes along today and saying to some of you, where are you? And some of y'all like, I've got a job. I'm safe. I've got a family. I'm safe. I've got friends who love me. I'm safe. And deep down inside, though, if you and I were to talk, I go... Really, he would confess and admit, no, because this thing right here could go anytime. Is it possible that this could be a way to explain our lives? What do I mean? Could it be possible that the reason why we're constantly in fear is not just because we're failing God, but we're fighting God for his job? And you and I know we're not qualified for it. Are you awake this morning? You go, I don't believe you. Okay, let me give you some example. Why are you worried? Why are you worried? You're worried not just because you're fiddling God. You're fighting God for his job. You're saying, I want to sit in the driver's seat. I know how my life ought to go. I know where history ought to go. I don't think you're going to get it right, God. And so you are overwhelmed with fear and anxiety and worry because you can't even control the weather. Thank you, Lord, very much for the 62-degree weather. (laughs) Church, are you hearing me? 
Why are you and I racked with worry and insecurity? Do you think it's just because we're failing God? We're fighting God for the driver's seat and saying, I want to be in control. And God's going, you're not qualified. Someone said this, worry is not believing that God will get it right. Bitterness is believing that God got it wrong. You got it wrong, God. Why are you uh, racked with bitterness? Why do you hold a grudge and you can't forgive somebody? You just can't forgive somebody. Why? 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 You're not just failing God. You're fighting God for his job. His job is what? As judge. You're saying, I know what that person deserves, and I'm going to rehearse it in my heart until it happens. And you can't forgive. And it's eating away your soul like toxic cancer. Bitterness is not just, I'm failing God, I shouldn't be bitter. You're fighting God for his job. Here's another way. Some of you, this is serious, some of you can't forgive yourself. Do you know how many counseling sessions I've had where people come and say, literally what they're saying, I put words in their mouth, I'm putting words in, they're saying, I know God has forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. Why? Because you're putting yourself as judge. Good Lord. One more example of how you're fighting God. Are you, are you with me now? Some of you are like, that's, that's, the most, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I'm not, I'm not fighting God. I'm, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. Okay, but you're resentful, you're angry because life isn't working out for you. Do you know why? Because you're putting yourself in the job of God as Savior. You're saying, God, I'm good. I obey. I pray. I stay away from trouble. You owe me. You owe me. Where are you? Where are you? Verse 10, then the angel said to them, fear not, I love that. For behold, I love that too. But then I love the next, the most. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The phrase good news is the word gospel, literally the word gospel. And the angel saying, I know why you're afraid. I know why you're afraid. All human beings are afraid when they get into the light of God's truth. But he's saying, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid if you behold the good news. If you behold the good news. If you're fearful this morning of your future, of rejection, fearful failure you're fearful as you look at our culture our society our city and the evil injustice the bible says it's because you're not beholding if you're beholding the gospel you're not afraid if you're afraid you're not beholding is there a more relevant message than today is there such a time as than today on how christians need to live courageously in the face of fear Can you think of another time in history where Christians could be the most powerful witnesses just by living lives of courage in the face of fear? Can I get an amen? We are living in a culture and society where politicians and other Christian leaders are playing on people's fears and culture of fear and prompting us to live in line with ways that are not the ways of Jesus. Here's what I know. And I don't know a whole lot, but here's what I know. I know that I follow and believe a Jesus who wouldn't say, take up arms and shoot Muslims if they come into your school so you want to be safe. I follow a savior who came and said, there is no greater love than this, that you lay your life down for another. 
I follow a Savior who said, there is no greater love than this, that you lay down your life for another. And that includes my atheist friends, my Muslim friends, my Hindu friends, my agnostic friends. That means that even as I witness and share the gospel with my Muslim friends, because I love them, at the end of the day, I love them, I serve them, and I die for them, whether they believe or not. Is there a time that is more needed than now? Come on. We have politicians who are saying to us, it's be afraid. Be very afraid. We're going to block these refugees from coming to this country because we don't know how many of them might be terrorists hell-built on killing all of us. And I look in the Bible and I see that the family of Jesus were refugees who flew to Egypt to get away from persecution and killing of innocents. He comes from a line of refugees for crying out loud who said, whatever you do for the aliens and refugees, you do unto me. When you feed them, you feed me. When you clothe them, you clothe me. When you house them, you house me. That is the way of Jesus. Is there a time more critical than now for you and I followers of Jesus to say, because of the good news, I I will not live in fear but I'll live lives of courage, pouring out my life on behalf of others. Are you listening to me? But how do we live that life of courage? Don't miss, how do you live that life of courage? Because you just try hard? Because you're just like Sophie and not a a fearful type? We're all like Parker, let's admit it. (laughs) I gotta stop talking about my children. (laughs) so bad. Church, I'm serious. Ah, I can't think of a time more important than now for followers of Jesus to live gracious, compassionate, loving, justice-minded, courageous lives in the face of fear. But I also am recognizing that you can't do that just because you try hard. You need the gospel. And what is the gospel? Anybody thankful for the gospel today? Good Lord. Look what the gospel is, yeah? Verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And there are two parts to the gospel that you and I need to behold. If we behold it, we can live fearless, courageous lives. If we're fearful, we're not beholding it, Christian or not. Again and again and again. The first part of the good news is that unto you is, don't miss this, born. Everybody say born. Born this day a Savior. He's a Savior who was born. He's a Savior who became a man. Why is that important? Don't miss the next two minutes because this is the essence of the gospel. Philippians chapter 2 says that Christ, though he was God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he came down as a servant and became obedient, even obedient unto death. We have a savior, church, who was born, who came down and became a man. Why? Here it is. You ready? Because he needed to live the life we should have lived, and he died the death we should have died. See, here's the gospel. Listen carefully. Christians, drill this deep into your soul every day. The gospel says Jesus lived a perfect life and died a perfect death. Jesus lived a perfect life and died a perfect death. And when repenting sinners place their trust in Christ, the perfect life that he lived is given to us, and the perfect death that he died is given to us. That means that when we place our trust in Christ, God not only takes away our sins and punishment for those sins forever, permanently, so that we never, ever have to live under the fear of condemnation again, but we're adopted into the family of God and we're loved as he loves his own son. So that in Christ, God has so bestowed us with his righteousness, with the beauty of Christ, the beauty that he gave up. God right now, if you're a follower of Jesus, at the sight of you, his heart bursts with joy. Is that good news? <laughs> no, no, I guess, kind of. <laughs> Is that good news? Are you kidding? That's why. We got to drill it down. That's why we're afraid. Because this is like, nah. I'll tell you why. Why we need to drill this down. Some of us are completely and utterly fearful and devastated by failure. Why? Any perfectionists in the house? 
you do, I'm sorry. Do the perfectionists are like, uh, uh, like you don't even want to, you don't even want to raise your hand unless it's perfect. Okay, so, anyway. is this right? Is this right? <laughs> so funny. This is right here, me. The epitome of someone who is terrified of failure because I'm a perfectionist. And fear of failure comes in different ways. Here's, here's what it looks like for me. I hear this voice inside my head that says, Peter, you're getting behind. Peter, you're getting behind. Anybody else hear that voice? Peter, you're falling behind. You're falling behind. I can look at a lot of areas in my life where I'm doing fine. But there's always this constant voice. You're falling behind. You're falling behind. You're never going to catch up. You're falling behind. You're falling behind. Now, here's the thing. If you're afraid of failure because you're a perfectionist and you hear that voice, you're falling behind, you're falling behind. What do you do when you, no matter what you do and how much you achieve, can never get rid of that voice that says you're falling behind, falling behind? Anybody know what I'm talking about? What do you do? Are you doomed forever? Here's the gospel. <sighs> the gospel says that Jesus' standards for you are so much higher than yours. What is his standard? Perfection. Be perfect, therefore, every heavenly father. That's his standard. You think your standards are high? Perfection. But the gospel says, in Christ, if he is your savior, in God's sight, you are what? You are what? Perfect in the sight of Christ. Blameless without blemish. That is the gospel. Is that good news? Unless that's real to you, it will haunt you for the rest of your life. Some of us have fear of rejection, terrified of rejection. Some of you are single and can't get into a serious relationship because you're deathly afraid. Oh, whoa, whoa, what if they see the real me? <laughs> I'm not going to get into relationships. I'm not going to get close to people. If they see the real me, I have, some, I have some news for you, good news and bad news. Here's the good news and the bad news. The good news. It's only, it's only, only good news. It's only good news because guess what the Bible says? Your heavenly father sees you to your bottom. Let me extend, take it further. Do you know that God already sees things that you haven't done yet, but you will do that will shock you when you do it? Let this sit for a moment. Some of you are really young. Good Lord, you're so innocent. You're so naive. Some of us older folk. It is me. There are things that I've said that have come out of my mouth I thought, that just did not come out of my mouth. Oh, yes, it did, Peter. That came out of your mouth, all right. There are things that I've thought, and there are things that I've done. It frankly shocked me. Do you know what the gospel says? The gospel says that you and I have a Savior who not only died for our sins, past, present, future, but who sees everything that we have done and we will ever do. And he looks at us and says, if you're in me, there is no more condemnation, rejection, disapproval coming your way. Is that good news? I don't know how I would live without it. We have a Savior who comes and says, and I love saying this to you guys because I preach to myself, God doesn't love some future better version of you. He loves you now. The only verdict that you're going to be searching for the rest of your life, the verdict for someone's acceptance, the only verdict that matters has already been given. In Christ, in Christ, you are uncondemnable. You are unrejectable. You are undisapprovable. Is that good news? First part is there's a Savior, but there's a second. I could go on and on and on, but you see how to apply it to your own heart and own life. Second part of that is the gospel that he is Christ, not only our savior, but he is Christ, the what? The Lord. You want to live a life without fear? Don't just receive my savior. You need to, church, listen, glorify him as Lord. You need to glorify him as Lord. What do I mean? Verse 13, and suddenly there was with the angels a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. I love saying that. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. What does it mean to glorify God? What does it mean to glorify God? It's not all that mysterious. I'm going to just like rip all the churchiness out of it and then just, just give it to you plain. What does it mean to glorify God? The glory of God literally in Hebrew is his weightiness. His, his weightiness. The glory of God literally means him, his immeasurable weight. 
or his incomparable significance. To glorify Jesus literally means this, church. Everybody look up here. To glorify Jesus means to look in his face and to say, Jesus, your goals are weightier than my goals in my life. To glorify Jesus, says Lord, is to look at Jesus and say, Jesus, your desires and your agenda are weightier and immeasurably more significant than my goals and my desires. Your wishes Your kingdom agenda, your life goals, your desires. Jesus, you, 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 Jesus, are way here than me and my life. I love this psalm. Psalm chapter 3, verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. You're my glory. Can everybody say that with me? You're my glory. One more time. You're my glory and the lifter of my head. To glorify Jesus means to go to him and say, you, Jesus, are weightier than me. That means you're not just a priority in my life. You're the only priority in my life. To glorify Jesus means to look at every single aspect of our lives and say, your goals, your desires, you, Jesus, and your beauty is immeasurably weightier and more significant than I will be. That means that I obey you whether I agree with it or not. That means I follow you whether I think it's my way or not. That means that my obedience is not contingent upon whether I think it's a good idea or it conforms to culture. I obey you wherever, whenever, however. You're my glory. You're my glory. You're my glory and the lifter of my head. Are you doing that? Am I doing that? Of course not. This is the reason why we're afraid of rejection. Why are we afraid of rejection? Because other people's opinion of us is weightier than God's opinion of us. Why are we deathly so sensitive to what people think? Because we put immeasurably more significant glory in other people than God's approval. Until God is your glory, you will not overcome that fear. Why are you worried and anxious 2016 and now I did? Because we are putting more glory and more weight to our own wisdom than God's wisdom. How many of us are sitting here this morning going, I know how my life ought to go. This is not what I intended. How will you overcome that? Jesus, your wisdom is weightier than mine. Your wisdom immeasurably more significant than And of course, I can't end this sermon without saying, are you afraid of the evil and injustice around us? Why are we afraid? Why are we afraid? Why are we afraid? Listen to what the author of Hebrews says, and I love this. Since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable. Can everybody say unshakable? We've been given a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Is that good news? Let us be thankful And please God by worshiping him with holy fear. There's that word again. And oh, we have been given a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I'm going to say it two more times until this hits you. Holy Spirit hit us. We have been given a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We have been given a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That means we serve a king who is one day going to return. And his hands are the hands of a healer. And one day he is going to come and he is going to fix and restore everything that has been corrupted by evil and sin. Every evil, every injustice, every sin out there, every sin in here that is corrupted will be cleansed and renewed. A new heavens and a new earth is on its way. He came once, he is coming again. In the meantime, he has given us a kingdom that is unshakable. Is this good news? And to the extent that that future is real to you, it will affect your present and how you live now. How do we live lives of absolute sacrificial service? How do we live lives that are radically obedient? How do we, church, live lives where we say, my life, my money, my resources, none of this really matters. I can give it and lay it down unless we believe that this body, this life, this world is not the only world we're going to have. A world in which God will rule and reign forever with those who follow him as Jesus, said Lord. That world is coming.
And he is coming back someday. That means that even as we lament the brokenness and be fully present in the brokenness, and even as we work towards justice, we have infallible hope to the expectation that he is coming back someday. Is that good news? How else do we possibly live lives without fear? How else do we possibly live lives that say, my life, my house, my body, none of this, none of this, none of this. I'm going to hold on to as if it's life and death for me because this isn't the only world. This isn't the only body. This isn't the only life. He's coming back. He's coming back. Some of you, today are anxious or worried about your future failure about the world around our city let me tell you why it's grace for God to help us be afraid of his glory and his light my favorite hymn is amazing grace and the line TC that is coming alive for me this Christmas season is this t'was grace that taught my heart to fear. Check this out. And grace my fears relieved. It's grace for God to bring us into his glory and light. That's the only way to have our fears relieved. Do you know why? Because unless you and I see our creatureliness and that we're not God, Unless we see that we are not capable, that we are not competent, unless we see that we have been living under this lie, this lie that says you can be the captain of your ship, the master of your own fate, unless we see that we've been living under delusion and lie, we will never be awakened into this truth. Behold, unto you this day is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He has given us a kingdom that is unshakable. Let us go to him. Let us bow down to him. Let us glorify. Glorify. Glorify his name. Pray with me. In this next few moments, be rigorously honest with yourself and ask Am I glorifying Jesus in his name? What is my glory? What is my weight? What is my incomparable significance? Is it Jesus? Can you say that with your hearts? Is it Jesus? Jesus, it's you. It's your name. It's your fame. You're my glory. Or is there anything else? Is there Anything else, church family, in your life that is your glory besides him? Is he your Savior? What is your salvation? What are you trying to wrap your fear and your insecurity in what precarious, tiny little things are you trying to hold on to? To not be afraid. Oh, Holy Spirit of God. Oh,
Before we respond and sing, I need to give this challenge. Man, I need to, as you continue to pray. For many of us, the first step towards embracing the gospel of Christmas and experiencing life transformation, I'm just going to put it out there, is repenting of the fact that we have taken over God's throne. We need to confess and repent of the fact that we taken on a job we are not qualified for. You know it and I know it. Start there. Admit our sins and saying, God, I did. I fought you for the throne of my heart and my life. I have you to the throne of my life. 